episode 1172 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented and made possible by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, that's the only way to be as far <laughs> as baseball is concerned right now, unless you're worse than fine, unless you're apocalyptic, as it seems almost every article is these days. But not a whole lot of news has happened, except that there was uh, going to be a, a strike for certain, and then there was not going to be a strike. <laughs> I I don't know. We've got, uh, what, three years before there will probably actually be a strike or not be a strike. So strap in, everyone. It's going to be a lot of stories like this for all of that time, but not a lot of actual signings or transactions. That's not news, but this is a week when it feels like a lot of the early season, like season is around the corner type rituals start happening. Mm -hmm. I guess what we're about to do is one of them. This is the first episode of our season preview series. So maybe that's one of them for some people, but you also have Pakoda coming out this week. You have Fangraphs and Baseball Prospectus putting out their top 100 prospects lists. It's that time of year where, you know, spring training technically starts. There's trucks trucks are en route carrying spring training stuff none of it consequential at all but it is kind of the the milestone that signals that baseball is coming back the super bowl is over that's the point yes the super bowl is over so now baseball is trying to be like look at us we're in center stage but they're not because there's other sports (laughs) that are happening and here's how baseball is celebrated the month of february looking at the mlb.com list of transactions here are the major league roster moves that have taken place across all of the league since February 1st. Brewers trade Andrew Suzak to Baltimore Orioles for player to be named later, but actually he'll probably be in the minors. So the answer is none. The answer is none so far. (laughs) Everything has been non-roster invites and some minor league contracts. They've gone to uh, a previous baseball player, Adam Rosales. He's got a minor league contract. Good for him. Someone named Estaline Ortiz. That's great. Uh, Darwin Mm -hmm. Barney. Bartolo Colon got a contract with the Rangers that people are excited about. I don't know why. I guess people love him, but he's not good. So he'll get a chance to not be good for the Rangers, probably. This has yeah. just been so difficult. <laughs> I'm not I'm not mad. I don't blame anyone in like I don't think anyone is doing this isn't the product, I don't think, of nefarious behavior. I get it. I get it from all I've talked to agents, I've talked to well, I haven't talked to players, but I've talked to agents. I've read what players have said. I've talked to people with teams, and I don't blame the teams for what's happening. But like some of the, I'm we're in the content creation business, and one of us does not have a diversified portfolio of things you can write about professionally. So it's just like this is really a struggle for me. Yeah. It just yeah. you throw me a bone because I don't want to retroactively write about David Hernandez signing with the Reds for five million dollars. What's your strategy right now? You wake up in the morning, you check. The the, the transactions you see nothing <laughs> then what yep <laughs> what do you do well How here's do you... <laughs> here's the good news the here's the good news of of friend slash former boss dave cameron working for the padres is now there's no one 
who I feel like <laughs> might be breathing down my neck in case I'm falling short of quota. So mm. I am writing less is what I'm doing. And so far, no one's been mad. Last Friday, I wrote an article about Wilmer Font for some reason. Yeah. Whatever. Who cares? I get to do what I want. Well, one way that we manufacture content every year at this time of year is with our season preview series. This is the sixth consecutive year that we will have done the Effectively Wild season preview series. And the format has changed somewhat over the years, but it has not changed since last year. So anyone who was with us then knows what it is now. Anyone who is new to the show now for the next, well, not quite 15 podcasts because we'll still be doing our regular listener email shows on Wednesday, but for the next 15 non-email show podcasts, we will be doing team previews. And in each of them, we will talk about two teams. And we're going roughly in order of projections as the projections, really just the the Zips projections or just the Steamer-based projections, you know, last week or whenever we solidified this, whatever they said then. So we're starting with the best projected teams and the worst projected teams. And then gradually we will meet in the middle. So today we are starting out with the Astros having my colleague Michael Bauman on to talk about them. And then we are going to talk about the White Sox, who are on the opposite end of the spectrum. And we are going to talk to their broadcaster, Jason Benetti, who is one of our favorite broadcasters, baseball people. Jason is great. So the idea is we talk to someone who covers each of these teams, tries to get the the local microscopic perspective on their roster. And that gets us through roughly till opening day. We'll be doing these things with the exception of the email shows right up until I think the week of opening day. So that will get us through this. I don't know what's going to get you through your blog posts, but at least our podcasts are covered. This is the worst time to write. I should have taken a much longer vacation. Anyway, (laughs) if you're a fan of one particular baseball team, either enjoy 15 of our next 22 podcasts, including this one (laughs) will be about team previews. Each podcast will feature two teams. If you are a fan of one team, enjoy listening and learning about the other teams or enjoy having having an extra hour and 15 minutes in your day because you can just skip right by these podcasts when your team is not the one covered. Yeah, we do hear from a lot of people who like listening to all of them and treat them as a a primer for the upcoming season. And actually, last year, I I think I did a poll in the Facebook group because I wasn't sure whether people actually wanted us to do these things or not. It's sort of different from our, our standard episode, but it was overwhelmingly in favor of Mm -hmm. continuing to do the series. So we are continuing to do the series. And I should mention also uh, another tradition of this series is that Banished to the Pen, banishedtothepen.com, which is, I don't know, our sister blog, our daughter blog, started by fans and listeners of Effectively Wild. They will be doing written previews of each of the team in sync with our podcasts. So same schedule. If you go to banishedtothepen.com right now, you can find their Houston Astros season preview and their Chicago White Sox season preview. So it's a good companion to our podcasts, as is the BP Annual, by the way, which is another one of the rituals that comes around this time of year. Those are showing up in bookstores now. I'm starting to see tweets about it. So all of it is happening and none of it is happening. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) I guess we can get to the previews. Oh, one thing, there was another baseball player on a trampoline sighting this weekend. This was uh, another Instagram story, so it's probably disappeared by now, but our eagle-eyed Facebook group listeners are just monitoring every player's Instagram feed for trampoline 
trampoline sightings, possibly. Javi Baez was on a trampoline this weekend and not just uh, bouncing casually or standing on one, but fully inverted on one, which uh, no one wants to see. These players have to report to spring training, if anything, because it will get them away from trampolines, except those types of trampolines that baseball players actually use for training, like the little ones for, I don't even know what they use them for, jumping off of and throwing things, but those seem less dangerous. Players are so stupid. You think you're young, you're a professional athlete, you think that you're bulletproof, you think nothing could possibly happen to you. Look at Java Chamberlain, things happen, yes. you get hurt, bad things can happen. I know you bring this up, people point to this because they're like, oh, we can, we can make Jeff laugh at players. That no, this isn't, this isn't something funny. This isn't a funny thing that players do. This is stupid. This is irri- Oh, it's like, if a player wants to go play pickup basketball and then he gets hurt, you'll be like, oh yeah, you probably shouldn't have been playing pickup basketball. What a great way to injure your knee or your ankle and just like reduce the duration of your career. Trampoline is no better and you're doing goddamn flips. Get your head on, Javi Baez. You know what? I'd DFA him to make an example. <laughs> On that note, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back with Michael to talk about the best team in baseball, the Houston Astros. Alright, our first guest of the 6th annual Effectively Wild Season preview series has, as far as I know, not jumped off any awnings or eaten any manure or robbed any wawas in the last 24 hours, but his heart is in Philly, even if his body is in Houston. It's my friend and my colleague at The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hello, and congratulations on your first ever Super Bowl. I know. I haven't, thank you, I haven't done any of the things you said, but I did maraud around Houston last night looking for light posts to climb. <laughs> so, Were you the only one? Were there just a few scattered Eagles fans looking for someone to vandalize things with? So I watched it at my apartment with Jay Kaplan, who covers, he's another baseball writer down here and another Philadelphia area native. And then uh, we went with my wife and a bunch of her coworkers, and she works in a foreign language department at a university. So most of them were non-American, non-native English speakers. So I don't think that they had like, I don't think they were prepared for what they witnessed in terms of football and people watching football. <laughs> well, how did it feel? Because you're, you're still like a full-fledged fan of the Eagles, right? I mean, this is putting you in the right mindset to talk about the Astros potentially here because you can feel the joy of the Houston area maybe right now. So uh, I've sort of lost this feeling and I, you're maybe baseball feeling of this sort has faded a bit. So, so yeah. what was it like to experience the full force of fandom again? The way I said it last night was it felt like the rapture happened, <laughs> but it didn't actually change anything. Like I, I legitimately didn't think the Eagles would ever win a Super Bowl in my lifetime. And now that it happened, like I feel like I ought to have superpowers that I don't have. <laughs> it was just like that shocking and, you know, transformative a moment. I'm like, oh shit, I gotta 
go on a podcast and talk about baseball this morning. <laughs> like this is yeah. <laughs> I thought I'd, like I thought I I'd be like taken to to the island or whatever. But does that explain like climbing lampposts and causing destruction because people think that they have superpowers and then quickly discover that they don't? <laughs> yeah, and you know a lot of Philadelphians do have superpowers. It's called Yingling. <laughs> uh, is the <laughs> is the superpower you saw manifested? I think on on the TV news last night. I, well, if you feel like you're missing out, your celebration missing out on the Philadelphia community, you can always come on and vandalize this podcast segment. <laughs> it's already in progress. So. <laughs> How are your powers of analyzing the Astros? Want to try doing that for a, a few minutes here? We, yeah. We, we were just <laughs> talking before we started recording about how there possibly isn't all that much to ask about the Astros. Because... Which I think is why you spend so much time asking me about football. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I mean, we, we pushed back our recording time so that you would perhaps uh, be more fully recovered from your revels of the night before. But then it occurred to us that Man, what is there even to ask about this team? It's, I mean, Jeff, you uh, you have a, a fun fact, a, a potential fun fact, unconfirmed fun fact, but would you care to share it? Unconfirmed fun fact that I think could end up confirmed. Waiting on zips, but I think there's a decent chance that the Houston Astros will be the best team preseason projected, at least going back to like 2005. I know that the Nephi people have already tweeted out that the Astros project better than any team has in Nephi's projection history. Now, I don't know if that's like a year or more than one year but the uh yeah the astros seem like they're likely to project for i don't know like 101 wins or something 103 because you know they're basically flawless so let's why don't we ask about how flawless they are yeah well so did they have a flaw coming into this winter like they they weren't losing a lot from the team that was already the best team in the league and i mean what was their goal we know of what they've done of course but if i had asked you this question on november 5th what would you have said that the astros had to do if anything i mean just keep the the whole thing together i you know right. they won 101 games they won the world series they're bringing everybody back except for carlos beltran pretty much and carlos beltran yes, wasn't very good loss, last at year least. Statistically yeah. speaking. <laughs> so they brought, I guess, like there's room for another bat because AJ Reed didn't really pan out. And I don't know, you know, where you want to play Marwin Gonzalez or, you know, how he fits into that lineup. Or I think the, the biggest thing is to sort of they needed to buttress themselves against regression. There's a couple guys like, you know, Marwin, I think, was a lot better than a lot of people realized going into last season, but he had the best season of his career. Jake Marisnik had the best season of his career. You know, Charlie Morton. And the thing about their rotation last year wasn't that it wasn't good. It was that they needed Keichel, McCullers, and Morton to all be healthy at the same time at the right time. And that happened. And if that doesn't happen, they don't get anywhere near the World Series. So, you know, pitching depth, which, you know, they've got, they had six or seven good starting pitchers anyway, and they went out and added Garrett Cole for just about nothing. So, I think they really took care of business. I think they could probably use one more bat, but you know, God knows what they're going to do in the free agent market. They were supposedly still in on you, Darvish, if he ever signs with anybody. So, I mean, they, they brought the band back and they got better. Here's the top five American League starting pitchers last year in strikeout rate, minimum 100 innings. Uh, number one, Chris Sale. Number two, Corey Kluber. Number three, Chris Archer. Number four, Brad Peacock. Number five, Luis Severino. Brad Peacock, not even in the Astros starting rotation. Is there flaw that they have too many starting pitchers? This is just going to be fawning over the Astros for half an hour. That's 
what the segment is. How does how is Brad Peacock not a starter on this team? That's insane. Given the the injury history for guys like McCullers and you know Keuchel missed some time last year, there's every chance that he does become a starting pitcher at some point during the season. I wonder. You know, how much of the, you know, he's gone back and forth from the rotation of the bullpen as recently as last year. I wonder how that'll sit with guys like Colin McHugh, who probably looks like the odd man out at this point, or one of the seven or eight odd men out. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a concession to, it's not that dissimilar, actually, from what the Dodgers and the Indians have, have done, which is, you know, you don't need five starting pitchers anymore. You need seven or eight. And now they've got seven or eight and they've just got to hope that enough of them, you know, the, it increases the likelihood that enough of them are, are healthy at the same time. And I think that's why, you know, if Garrett Cole isn't the number one starter that we thought he was or would become, he was a good fit for the Astros because he's pretty much a nailed on 200 innings and they're going to avoid, you know, a lot of the innings that went to somebody like Mike Fires last year are going to go to Garrett Cole, who, if nothing else, is a, an above average major league starting pitcher. And they didn't give up a whole lot to get him. So I don't know what they're, you know, who's going to be healthy by opening day. I don't know who's going to be healthy by the All-Star break or, or by October, but they've got enough quality pitchers now that they'll have guys that you feel comfortable going into, into the rotation with. Or they could, you know, A.J. Hinch is with Peacock and, and Chris Davinsky and the way he managed in the postseason has shown a willingness to bring these guys in for two or three innings at a time out of the bullpen. So that's, you know, they signed Hector Rondon, but there's still some questions about how Ken Giles bounced back and Davinsky lost a little bit towards the end of last year. So, you know, he and Hinch wasn't using him in that multi-inning role. You know, I could see guys like McHugh and Peacock getting a lot of innings as sort of the playoff Andrew Miller, but in a more conservative, maybe more regimented basis. Mm. Well, there go my next three or four questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, because, you know, that was like the innovative thing that the Esters did last October. I mean, the important thing they did was have a really good baseball team. But the thing that we all talked about that they did was that they brought in starters in the middle innings and they seemed to lose some faith in their bullpen guys, particularly Giles. And Giles, of course, was the closer, the mainstay really effective reliever all year long and it looks like he's just going to be slotted into that role again like I don't know if there's any mental after effect for him but it doesn't seem as far as we can tell that the team has any lingering uncertainty about his ability to pitch at least in the regular season and I mean it I guess all comes down to if everyone's healthy in the rotation I mean if McCullers is healthy if all of these guys are Keuchel healthy Morton healthy they don't really need to get all that creative but you know a year ago we were talking about how many innings is Chris Davinsky going to pitch and now that's less of a talking point and it's more of how many of these guys are going to be going back and forth and how quick are the hooks going to be yeah and particularly with the with the 10 day DL making it like so they can they can skip a start for somebody like McCullers or Morton who's traditionally not held up to a big workload they could skip a start without really hamstringing their bullpen flexibility and this is you know this is somewhat out of necessity but nobody so nobody on the Astros pitched more than 162 innings for them I think Verlander made 30 starts but he came in later in the season he probably will make 30 starts just like he does every year but but uh, their their uh, leader in innings pitch last year was Mike Fires <laughs> at 153. So it, some of that is necessity. Like if Keuchel's healthy all year, he makes 33 starts. He throws 220 innings or whatever. But you know they shuttle guys back and forth from the rotation of the bullpen, not just 
Brad Peacock, but Joe Musgrove. So they spread the the workload around a lot, even during the regular season. And I don't know, maybe that that trend continues as their rotations deeper than ever. If there is one thing that is pretty clearly missing from the bullpen. Uh, they have Tony Sip as a lefty, but he's kind of the lefty that's out there. I think that's one of the reasons a lot of us have been expecting the Astros to just end up with Tony Watson. But they do have someone who's, I don't know if he's a lot more fun personally, but he's a lot more fun from our perspective than Tony Watson. That's Anthony Ghost. Anthony Ghost being a uh, 27-year-old outfielder who's a pitcher now. Uh, August Fagerstrom wrote a post at Fangraphs a few years ago about the outfielders who threw 100 miles per hour based on early StatCast information. Ghost was one of a small handful of outfielders who did it. It seems like, you know, it's we still have a few weeks before spring training, but it seems like the Astros are actually all in on this Anthony Ghost as a lefty thing. How much fun is this? What do you what do you think are the chances? Let's let's actually try it this way. How many innings at the major league level do you think Anthony Ghost throws for the Astros this season? Michael and I have been burned by two-way players before. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, you've been burned by two-way players cuz we did the we did the Christian uh, Betancourt over under and I picked something like 20 innings and hit it and I do the same with Ghost. So I think it's less. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, a decent chance he doesn't throw he doesn't lead the team in innings thrown by a position player next year because they use J.D. Davis in relief quite a bit <laughs> down the stretch. The thing about two-way players, and this is the the hang-up, is they have to be good enough to hack it. And unless Ghost is like some revelatory bullpen lefty, I don't I don't think he hits enough to get at bats in an outfield to or even be worth worth carrying on like a three or four man bench when you've got Fisher and Marisnik. So I don't know. I I think it's fun. I'm skeptical of how much we see. And you know, Ben referenced Christian Betancourt, and we were all I I was a lot more confident in Christian Betancourt's ability to stick two ways than I was in Anthony Ghost. Mm. Just for the record, I hated this answer. I, I know. I mean, <laughs> I wanted more fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned hitting, which is the thing that the Astros excelled at just about more than any other team ever. I probably linked to the all-time WRC plus leaderboard a dozen times last year just because the Astros were the highest ever aside from the late 20s, early 30s Yankees, 121 WRC plus. And as you mentioned, they lost Beltran, who was not really contributing to that and basically brought everyone else back. And Normally you would say, well, if you have a team that's like the fourth best hitting team ever, you'd expect some regression there. But then you start looking at the individual names and it's like not many of them seem to be playing that far over their heads. I mean, you've got Marwin Gonzalez, of course, but then you can start listing guys who are at the age where they should be getting better or Carlos Correa missed a bunch of time last year. So how far do they fall, do you think? I think a little bit. I think, like I said, Marisnik had a uh, looking at it now, 122 OPS plus in about 250 plate appearances. There was nothing in there that even hinted at Jake Marisnik being a an above average big league hitter before. I think Marwin backs up a little bit, but not as much. Like he's he's posted 110 uh, WRC pluses a couple times in his career already. You know he'll back up a little bit. The guy who maybe slides back the most might be Josh Reddick, who quietly hit 314 last year. Which you know being at Minute Maid Park for about half of their their home games shocked me that mm-hmm. that he had hit for that high an average. And he got exposed a lot in the in the playoffs. I wonder if that's just one of those things where your weaknesses get blown up uh, in that small sample where everybody's going out all out all the time and. And in a way that 
isn't replicable in the in the regular season, but he had a great season last year. I'd probably count on some regression from, from him. Brian McCann is only getting older. But apart from that, like they gave a lot of at-bats to Nori Aoki, who was not very good last year. They gave a lot of at-bats to Beltron. There's still a hole. And I don't know, you know, if Kyle Tucker's not there yet, like I don't have a whole lot of confidence in AJ Reed or or Tyler White to be a full-time DH. And maybe that's a rotation, you know, a spot where they they rotate Fisher or Marwin or, or somebody like that. But I think there's that one hole in the lineup and a couple guys who are going to regress a little bit. But I, I, this is just what Correa and Springer and Altuve are. Like, they are this good. Yuli Gurriel never strikes out. And like, just they have built this good of a lineup. So it'll back up. It won't be, I don't know. I wouldn't bet on anything being historically good, but neither would I bet on a, a, a huge regression. I'm going to consult my index card full of Josh Reddick is unclutch related questions, <laughs> but it seems like it's so right now in greater baseball, the dominant conversation is the players are unhappy. Owners aren't spending money. Everything is just stagnated stalemate. Uh, spring training is happening. I don't know. I think three hours from now, I think is the start of spring training and, and nothing seems to be budging. So there's a greater conversation about teams not spending money. And there's a lot of criticism of teams that seem to be tanking or rebuilding or not being committed to winning, etc. You see where this is going, but the Astros, of course, the, you get the questions that our Cubs guest got last year of so how was it? Was it uh, was it justified? The Astros right now are up to, I think, 152 million projected opening day payroll. And six years ago, five years ago, they bottomed out. They were at 26 million. They dropped from 61 to $26 million overnight. They, uh, of course, were dreadful. One of the worst teams in recent history, all with an eye toward trying to get better in the long term. But was it worth it? Do you, do you wish that they wouldn't have bottomed out as they did? Or is your sense that people have forgotten or forgiven them for being so bad and so cheap for that little stretch of time forgotten no forgiven yes and i you know even as someone who's about as pro labor as sports writers get i'm not against tanking or, or bottoming out particularly in a situation where the, with the astros where like there was no infrastructure and what infrastructure was there was bad so if you if there were ever a case to burn a team to the ground and and just completely start over this was it but i think when you tank you in order to tank ethically if such a thing exists you make a deal with your fans for two things one you're going to win and two when the time comes you're going to spend and obviously they've won you know that it doesn't get any better than it was last year they made the playoffs in 2015 they're almost certainly going to make the playoffs again in 2018 maybe in 2019 and they're spending as far as the spending question goes you know sort of and they added a lot of veterans on the kind of veterans who uh, have been screwed in the free agent market guys like Reddick, they traded for for Brian McCann. You know, they signed Yuli Gurriel, who was in his 30s. Like those players tend not to get long term commitments uh, the way the Astros gave to a couple of them last year. But they were they were uh, shipping out existing payroll, so it wasn't really that big of a net spend. And we're looking at Dallas Keuchel's in the last year of his deal. I he's almost certainly gone after this year. And Al, Jose Altuve is one on the most player unfriendly contract in baseball for for my money and he's gone i think the year after that is the last year of his contract or is the the last option year so the question now is 
do they sign a guy like Darvish? Do they, or you know, do they extend their, you know, their existing young core guys like Correa, Altuve, Springer, now Garrett Cole's there? Do they commit long term? Like, when does this money, when does this hundred fifty million dollar payroll turn into a two hundred million dollar payroll? And I think that's something that a winning team in a market as big as Houston, with as much, and they've sneakily got a little bit of the Braves and and Cardinals thing where they have regional appeal beyond their big market. They've got access to a big lucrative fan base if they want to tap into it. So personally, I think they're duty bound to do that even more than they are already. The question is, can they get these guys to sign? Like I know there was something came out last year about Correa saying that he wasn't planning on signing a a long-term extension. And then he walked that back and he said, well, if the money's right, you know, I'll sign it. So, you know, they're going to face some hard questions and they should if if Keiko walks and Altuve walks and Correa and Springer walk, you know, and they continue to just run, you know, maybe a, a 10 to 15 payroll in MLB, given the the team's success and given the, the market that they have access to. Yeah, right before we started talking, Yester signed George Springer to a two-year, $24 million deal. That's just buying out his second mm-hmm. and third years of arbitration. He's a super tier guy. He'll still have another arbitration year left after that deal expires. Is there one guy who seems like the most obvious candidate? Like, why haven't they gotten a deal done with Player X yet? Or they should get a player, uh, they should get a deal done with Player X now? The player they should get a deal done with is probably Altuve because he's their best player. And it's a little, what's troubling to me is, so you remember when Sal Perez signed that ridiculous, like, it was like 15 years for $28 million contract or whatever it was with the, the Royals. And then once they got into the the meat of what would have been his arbitration years, they they ripped up the the back end of that deal and gave him something more commensurate with market rate. And Altuve's contract's kind of similar to that. Mm-hmm. It's a little troubling that they didn't, that they didn't do anything similar. And they're going mm-hmm. into the last two years of of team control for him for the actual American League MVP, you know, now at this point. So it's a little troubling that they haven't done that. And, you know, short of him, the obvious answer after that is probably Correa, who is being groomed as that transcendent star. Like he is, you know, Altuve is the best player. Correa, who's a little bit, I don't want to say more media savvy, but like a little more Jeter-like, you know, is the face of the franchise. Mm -hmm. So those are the two guys that that I would target, you know, that feels like an obvious answer. But yeah, I, I can't think of two guys who would be more valuable to lock up. <laughs> the Astros uh, were sixth in the AL in attendance last year, 2.4 million. You'd certainly expect them to get a bump coming off the World Series. How high do you think they can go? I know you're not a, a native Houstonian. Maybe you weren't going to Astros games when they were good a while back. But do they have the potential to be, you know, like top two or three? Would you expect a really big bump there? Actually, at some point you run into like stadium capacity issues. And I don't I don't have the like the list of, of capacity in front of you, but I don't know that Minute Bay Park is that big. The other problems are Houston is very spread out and like there are parts of you get out to like Katy and the Woodlands in the north and you know out to maybe the Galveston area, you know, places that are very solidly Houston country, there's no way you can get out of work at five and get to the park at, at at seven, uh, just the way the traffic is here. Mm. So I think there's a limit to how, you know, I'd expect them to move up from six, certainly. The other thing is, as big as Houston is, it's also football obsessed. And the Astros and Rockets are definitely not only 
do they take a backseat in the local sports landscape to the Texans, but to Texas A&M and, and LSU to a certain extent is probably bigger than the Rockets or the Astros. So I think there's still a cap to how much attention they can draw. But, you know, who knows? This city hasn't seen a title in 20 years. So who knows how much that'll shake up the landscape? Do you think that given that the Astros were able to go from so bad to so good, and now they've turned into this apparent juggernaut. Do you think that maybe they're almost like a dangerous role model? Because when when they tanked, when they went all the way down to the studs, them and the Cubs both, I don't have a perfect recollection of that time, but they seem like they were kind of the only two teams really invested in, in doing that. And now that the model has been, I don't know what word to say, but popularized, do you think that now the idea of getting that bad has become too popular and, and too appealing? Because obviously you can only have so many teams successfully doing that at once. Yes, I, I do. I think <laughs> the necessity is not there the way it was with the Astros and the commitment and execution. If you like a badly executed tank is indistinguishable from what the Marlins are doing or what the Pirates did. You know, there are teams and or you know, when the Braves tore it down, they had a young, fairly inexpensive, very competitive core that they just blew up for no reason that I can identify even several years down the road. So if more than a couple, and that's the thing about tanking, if more than a couple teams are are doing it, it gets into these sort of ugly uh, competitive balance issues that some of which are legitimate, some of which are just concern trolling, but it also becomes less effective. Like I think the the market inefficiency now is getting from is doing what the Angels did, or maybe even what the Giants are doing. Well, you know, we've got this mediocre team. Let's see if we can toss some money at a couple free agents and get from mediocre to good. I think it's easier to get from mediocre to good now than it has been at any point in baseball that I can remember. I don't know if you have any theories or if you've heard any theories, but I I think a, a lot of people still think of Minute Maid Park as a hitter's park, as a good offensive park, and it seemingly has been at times in its history, but is not now. And even if you look at the multi-year park factors on baseball reference, it's like way down there. I think it's closer to the extreme pitching end. So have you like structurally, I mean, it's not Towels Hill doing this. So have you heard any ideas about what might be causing this change in, it seems like, just a few years? Yeah, I I wonder if there's some sort of, like if that if the the swing plane revolution or the juiced balls have have changed uh, the way the park plays league wide like it's not Houston's very low and very humid. You know, you're not getting atmospheric conditions. I think like perception wise, because it was so extreme so early on and because the Crawford boxes are still there, it still looks yeah like a hitter's park, like the Crawford boxes are like 10 feet from third base. Uh, And, but the, the other thing is once you get out past through left center, it gets deep fast. And it's sort of the same on the other way or in the other, the other direction in a way that it isn't really in a lot of major league ballparks. So I, you know, that's where you're losing a lot of that ground, but yeah, I don't know what could have changed unless, the league-wide offensive conditions, you know, the strikeouts going up, home run rates going up, fly ball rates going up are somehow uniquely detrimental to offense in Houston relative to the rest of the league. So, yeah, you know, not being a 
climate scientist or having looked at, <laughs> at any of the data like that. I really don't know. But you're right. Like the like in my head, like I know this isn't true, but I still think like I still look at, at the Crawford boxes and still think this is a hitter's park. Yeah, we should not have introduced you as a climate scientist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so let, I want to ask you about the Crawford boxes. They've been there for a while. Do you like them? When you see some of those ridiculous home runs like we saw last last October and I think maybe early November just uh, some of those like you know 43 degree launch angle 323 whatever stat cast feet you know the garbage home runs that we all love to write about do you like those with the Crawford boxes yes like I'm generally I would like the game to have fewer home runs and fewer strikeouts and more balls in play but like I also love the miniature golf aspect to baseball that like baseball is unique and that the field dimensions can vary wildly from stadium to stadium. So I like weird gimmicky stuff that, you know, you have to hit the ball through the windmill essentially. It's why I was one of 10 people who is a big fan of Tal's Hill. And I was like legitimately pissed off when they bulldozed it. So this is one, like, this is just how you have to play in Houston that like, I don't know, like I've seen Andrew and Simmons play there a couple times. Like they're probably home runs that he, could have run down from his standard shortstop position (laughs) and that's it's fun it's weird like i think baseball is a little too self-serious sometimes it it could stand to be more weird put a windmill on top of it (laughs) well the dinger machine's for sale like (laughs) (laughs) put it in play that's what the marlins haven't done how good do you think Alex Bregman is? I mean, he's already really good. He was really good last year, but he had such a great postseason in some ways. I mean, he hit four home runs, some some big home runs. He had some really impressive fielding plays, throws to the plate. I think people sort of discovered Alex Bregman in the postseason, a lot of people who hadn't been watching the Astros all year. And so mm-hmm. I don't know if people are thinking of him as like on the level of you know, Correa and Altuve or or even Springer or whether he deserves to be. I mean, he's certainly part of that incredibly enviable four-person core that any team would want. But do you think that he has that sort of ceiling? I don't think he has like Correa-Altuve ceiling. I think he's a freak, just natural contact hitter. Uh, he's one of those guys who can just get the bat on almost anything and hit it hard. You know, I think the other physical tools are a little bit short of like he'd have to be like a, a Jose Altuve level contact hitter in order to turn into that kind of player. I also think he's a little miscast as a, a third baseman. Like the thing on him coming up was that he was just just a, he played shortstop at LSU and he was just a little bit short of being an average defensive shortstop, but moving him to third base doesn't like his deficiencies aren't range or, or hands or range or things that, that you could you could cover up by uh, by sending him to third base and he's been fine over there but I think the Astros would be better defensively if they swapped him and Correa which will never happen but I think he'd be best at second base but they can't move him there either because they got the best second baseman in baseball so I think his ceiling is sort of I don't know. We'll see what Springer's like, but I think he could be as good as Springer, probably not as good as Correa, definitely not as good as Altuve, which still leaves him a lot of room to be even an all-star level player. But he's also still, you know, he's not younger than Correa, but he's got a lot less major league experience than uh, certainly Altuve and Springer. So he's still got room to improve. Ben's going to ask to close this out for a win prediction. You uh, you presumably know that, but mm-hmm. forget 2018. Given the Astros divisional competition, what year do you think that is going to be the next year that they don't win the American League West? 
they start losing people around like they lose Keiko, but they start losing people on mass around 2019. So I'd say 2020 is a good, good place to to set that line. I think they'd probably be favorites just looking at it now. Definitely favorites to, to win the division this year, probably favorites to win it again next year. But 2020, it could start to get interesting. All right. Well, now that you've forgotten 2018, remember 2018 again and give me a win total prediction for this year. So I, I feel good going high knowing that Zips thinks that they're <laughs> they're so good. And this like this division could be really bad. So like I mean they they got to 101 wins last year by beating up on on some bad competition. I don't know. I'll go 98, which like took a lot of effort to get out. Like that's a <laughs> that's an outrageously high win prediction, yeah. but but not entirely unwarranted, I think. Nope, I don't think so. Well, hopefully you and I will speak again soon. But uh, you can read Michael, of course, at The Ringer. Well, you'll be able to once baseball (laughs) news happens again. (laughs) If that ever happens. But you're not going to write an Eagles celebration. I guess we've already had several of them. Apparently not. Yeah, we've we've had a bunch. I wasn't in any any (laughs) position to write last week or last night. So, yeah. But if you want to read about, I think the last three things I wrote are about Taylor Kitsch. So if you want to read about (laughs) Taylor Kitsch, then find my stuff at the (laughs) room. Thank you, Michael. All right. Thank you. All right. We'll be right back to talk to Jason Benetti about the White Sox. So we are joined by newly extended White Sox play-by-play announcer Jason Benetti. White Sox fans, you're stuck with him. You might as well get used to him. Start listening to him now. This is a good time to do it. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. The the newly extender sounds like a torture device. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate it. So how many White Sox games will you be doing this year? Because a lot more is is one answer. Yeah, no, that that's basically the answer. It's roughly 140. So Hawk Harrelson is going to do mostly Sunday home games and a couple other series as well, this being his final season. Mm-hmm. So he's going to do a couple other series along with Sunday home games, opening day, I believe, as well. So it's... It's a little spottier than exactly 140, but but the number is going to land somewhere around there. Mm. So you're known for being quite the jet setter in uh, what September of last year. You you made some history, made some headlines by calling three games in multiple sports in a 23 hour span. And true to your reputation, when I got in touch with you about coming on the podcast, I said, "Well, how about this time? Is that good for you?" Well, no, I will be in the air at that time. I'm gonna be flying to Fayetteville. Well, how about this time? Is that any better? Well, I land in Atlanta at this time, and then I have a connecting flight. So will this affect your ability to multitask and multi-sport and rack up frequent flyer miles? I think what you're saying is I'm just a pain in the neck to schedule. With. <laughs> uh, the, and also, I, don't, I, I would have only made history if I was the one flying the plane last year. I think this is just a little crazy. But no, I um, the, the plan is I'm, I'm still under contract with ESPN, and I, I plan to continue to be uh, as long as they want me. And the 
the whole uh, idea is that when I'm in sock season, other than maybe a weekend in September or two to fulfill some football obligations, I will be I'll be the Sox guy, and that's what I'm going to be that's what I'm going to be doing uh, primarily. But then in the off season, I'll still be doing some ESPN work. So when there's overlap, the Sox have first priority over me, and ESPN's very aware of that. But but there are certain circumstances where I might miss a game at some point to fulfill a football obligation. Moving to the White Sox away from Jason Benetti, because I guess <laughs> technically we're here to talk Everyone to Everyone moves about... away from me. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm repelling. With the, with, the, uh, with the Houston Astros, obviously their rebuild is complete, but you know, June Lee just had an excellent article yesterday about Mark Capel stepping away from the game. He was uh, uh, what you might refer to as a classic draft bust. Of course, the Astros had Brady Aiken go wrong, yet their rebuild was still complete. Long story short, what is the mood around the White Sox right now? Where is the level of regret with with all the White Sox have done? Getting James Shields for Fernando Tatis, now a top five, maybe top ten prospect. Looks bad, looks really bad, but how, uh, how, how has the team managed to, I guess, get past that one? Because it, it sure does seem pretty regrettable. So first thing, that story that, that June wrote was outstanding. The the picture of what Mark Appel did to that uh, wood uh, sheet in the clubhouse was ridiculous. If people haven't seen it, Mark Appel was evidently very angry about one of his outings in lovely Lancaster at 9 million feet in the air when nobody's curveball works and he threw a bunch of baseballs through this piece of plywood or whatever it was. That's an awesome story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not an answer to your question. Um, <laughs> the the answer simply is, uh, we just had Sox Fest this past weekend, and the answer simply is, there are so many prospects to go around. Even if you miss on unloading somebody before this whole rebuild started to happen, I think that the tenor around the team is as positive as I've ever seen around a baseball team preseason. And I mean, minor leagues, you're not going to have thrilling excitement in January because you don't know who your players are going to be. But when you see the way the fans have reacted to the rebuild and and some of the personalities that are on this up and coming team, I think it's pretty, it's pretty wild how different Sox Fest felt last weekend because of, first of all, the glut of prospects. I mean, you've got Blake Rutherford there, Eloy Jimenez there, Giolito, Kopech, Ronaldo Lopez was there, Moncada. I mean, the list is 10 deep of people who could really become stars. So I think the Tatis trade kind of doesn't really register with people around here. As, as, as silly as that is to say, because I know he shot up prospect lists, but I, that's not one that necessarily is, is ringing in people's ears simply because of the, the job that Rick Hahn has done with Kenny Williams of, of reloading the farm system, or some people might say in their lifetime, loading it up for the first time. I wanted to, I guess, ask you about that theme because one of the arguably the biggest conversation right now taking place in baseball since nothing is happening is that teams aren't spending and too many teams aren't trying to win. Too many teams are embracing the rebuild and maybe conditioning their fans to not expect winning. But as as you're saying right now, there's a lot of enthusiasm around the White Sox, even though here's here's the thing. We're having you on first on this podcast because the White Sox project to be the worst team in baseball. That's uh, that's how right, we decided. Thank you. Yeah, that's, <laughs> no. that's how we uh, oh. decided the order here. So what have you noticed? I, I know when I've anecdotally like pulled readers at Fangraphs, there is 
uh, the White Sox fans have expressed that they're happier with the front office now than they were a few years ago when they were sort of stuck in between. But how would you gauge the fan base's enthusiasm? Has has the fan base really been receptive from the beginning to this entire we're not going to try to win in the next few years project? It's crazy to say because nothing is 100% firm in this world. But yes, yeah, the answer is yes. I mean, the enthusiasm, it's boundless enthusiasm right now. And I, I do not say that lightly. I, I emceed maybe four panels at SoxFest or was on uh, or emceed four panels combined. There were no negative questions. I mean, it was remarkable how much Sox fans understand and believe in this run of prospects. I, it, is, it is really, truly remarkable. It was some of those positive vibes I've gotten from a fan base that I've ever seen, ever. That's as a sports fan or employee of a team or employee of a network. I, it was really, truly notable. So I thank you, by the way, for explaining why I was on. Um, the, <laughs> and you're just our, our favorite guest. And, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That one's important, but not as important as the bad White Sox. <laughs> the Marlins just traded everybody. And I, I, come on. Dude. I thought we were buddies. Uh, so the whole, the whole point. <laughs> to me is 2019 and beyond is when the window starts. I think, I think people totally believe that, but also you look at what this team did in September and they, they were playing like a last place team through most of the season. And then they, they played a, you know, a pretty close to 500 September. I don't remember what the final record was, but they, they played pretty well in September and there's some really likable guys. I mean, that still is part of it in baseball is we, we have some in this city, some likable personalities on the South side. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw, but uh, Yolmer Sanchez did a card trick at Sox Fest <laughs> where the punchline of the card trick was I get hit in the head with two sets of cards. <laughs> that was that was the punchline. Like it was like, oh, reach down and point to a card. I don't care if it's your card that you pulled from the deck. And then he just whacked me in the head with the playing card. <laughs> so it's that's likability. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, well, it, I don't remember uh, much of the trick. But, <laughs> no, I, there, there are some pretty neat personalities in this clubhouse and then coming into the clubhouse. So I think that's where the enthusiasm comes from. Honestly, if you, if you have a bunch of guys who played okay in September, but finished mostly at the bottom of the pack, I don't think the city feels the same way, but they, they saw some energy and some, some vitality from the end of last season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I wonder whether it would have been more difficult to get the fan base on board like this in an earlier era when people weren't as well informed about prospects and about the front office's plans and when the front offices generally weren't as good about communicating those plans. And I think according to Baseball America and Keith Law, the White Sox just recently ranked fourth in organizational rankings in baseball and really could have ranked higher if they hadn't promoted some of their top prospects already last year. I think Keith Law said that he would have them number one in under 25 talent from the majors on down. So, I mean, you're a part of communicating that movement to people who are not seeing these prospects every day. You're helping introduce people to them and to that next generation of White Sox players. So how has that changed your job? I mean, you have to presumably do a lot of research and know what's going on with players you're not actually seeing and talking to every day. And you have to have some sense of how they project and what 
part they're going to play on this team in the future. So it's a little different from following a team calling games for a team that already is kind of at the the peak of the win curve. Yeah, I, I, it ends up being a little bit of a wheelhouse thing for me, though, because I spent two years in A ball and five years in AAA and one year in independent ball. So like, <laughs> I, I know all the hotels those guys have been to, and I know I know where you get bed bugs in the <laughs> Carolina League. So, uh, but part of it is too. We decided last year every game we are going to have some report on the minor league, whether it's an interview I did with one of these guys in spring training, and we did like 20 of them last year in spring training to have some sound from them so people could get to know them, or highlights or video, or I mean, there were a couple times like we had Mark Rodolonic on the phone from Charlotte during a game, just chatting with us about what was going on there. So we we tried to more than just show, you know, Eloy Jimenez one for four with a double, we try to show what they're learning and what they're improving upon by talking to people involved with that process. So uh, it's it's a big part of our show, I think. Uh, every night we do something from the minors and, and hopefully with substance. Mm-hmm. And the White Sox, like a lot of teams, have had a, a fairly quiet offseason. They've added some relievers. They signed Wellington Castillo. They brought back Miguel Gonzalez. But do you have a, a theory for why they stopped where they did? Obviously, they were one of the, the busiest teams trade-wise in the year leading up to this winter. But there were guys who potentially were on the block, were mentioned in rumors repeatedly, whether it was Garcia or Abreu. And they have held which Garcia we have, <laughs> we have multiple. That's, that, that's true. The All Star one. So why do you think that they have held on to those guys? And you know, there's still some time before opening day, but it's sounding likely at least that they will be back. Yeah, I think I think it's whether or not you can find a trade partner with all the guys and get a deal that you deem to be fair. Now I sound like a general manager, but the case of Jose Abreu, I think, is a little bit interesting because the White Sox have a history of uh, being a positive place for Cubans to play. And there's a fairly lengthy history of that. And Jose Abreu is part of that. And Rick Hahn just said the other day, in terms of the, the possibility of trading Jose Abreu, what he does in the clubhouse makes him more valuable probably to the Sox than any other team in baseball, at least in terms of what you're going to get for him. And the way Abreu has nurtured the friendship which goes back years with Yohan Moncada and then Moncada down to Luis Robert who you know we'll see in a couple years the hope is in in his athleticism but I think Abreu starting that train and making Moncada feel comfortable and making some of the other Spanish-speaking players more comfortable in the clubhouse he has been that type of leader and he, he really grew into it even more last year so I think especially with Abreu the intangible benefits continue to outweigh the value that other teams would place on him. And so I think that's the explanation for him. And then for other players, I think it's either you didn't find a trade partner or you want to go ahead and keep that person because you think the numbers are going to continue to ascend. You're looking at the White Sox roster right now. Of course, we could we could ask you about individual players all day long. There, with any sort of rebuild like this, there are players of intrigue up and down the roster. But looking at the pitching staff in particular, behind James Shields, behind Miguel Gonzalez, you have a whole lot of youth, a whole lot of unpolished youth, and 
and with the White Sox, of course, just as people th- associate the Pirates with Ray Searage, I think people still, a lot of people still associate the White Sox with Don Cooper, who that's probably a good reason for that. He's still there, still the coach. But I know that in the past, Cooper has had a, uh, a strong reputation for helping seemingly to keep pitchers healthy and helping the the anecdote I always think of is how he rescued Matt Thornton and made Matt Thornton into a, a good pitcher instead of a thrower, as you'd say. But what's the air of confidence around what Don Cooper is going to be able to do? Because right now, looking at Giolito, Fulmer, uh, Verdon, Lopez, Kopech, Covey, not even to say anything about the bullpen, there's a there's very clearly a whole lot of pitching talent in here that uh, has yet to really find its way in the major leagues. Giolito made some progress last year, but how is the relationship between Don Cooper and the pitching staff that is maybe about a half or a third of his age? Are you trying to date Don Cooper? <laughs> <laughs> uh, where's Coop? So he's got, a, he's got a great relationship. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, and we were talking a little bit about this last weekend, is that the relationship between Coop and analytics because he is very much an old school pitching coach, but more guys are coming in with understanding of spin rate and things like that. And so Coop and the analytics department have evidently had some discussions and he's getting information. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but he's getting information from our our proprietary folks, our stats folks with the White Sox, who are basically giving him that sort of stuff so he can relate. And he's willing to understand that and bring that into to his conversations with these younger pitchers. And look, he's a really likable guy. He certainly knows what he's doing. I mean, people are writing stories about finding the next Anthony Swarzak and Tommy Canely, which is a crazy headline as of 365 <laughs> days ago. So I think he's terribly effective, and I'm trying to say that word as much as possible because I think if I say it enough, I win the effectively wild home game <laughs> as a prize. Is that right? Is that how that goes? Yeah, right. So is that a no? Yeah. <laughs> Do I not win the home game? You get to be in charge of our group wiki. You have to archive past episodes. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's horrible. <laughs> you can do it while you're flying. <laughs> yes, that's true. Can I? They have Wi-Fi on planes now. Does GoGo work with that? <laughs> Usually, sometimes. So Tim Anderson is uh, one of those intriguing players, right? Because he was really one of the, the first players of the youth movement of the wave of prospects promoted. And I think he maybe surprised people how valuable he was almost immediately in 2016. Took a step back last year. And so there's a lot of question about whether he will take a, another step forward this year. So what do you think about Tim Anderson? Obviously, the the rap on him has always been the lack of walks, and that certainly continued to be the case. But it looked like he had possibly found a way to succeed despite that in 2016. But that was one of those years where it seemed like every batted ball fell. So maybe that was right. part of it. Well, so with Tim, he knows he's got to strike out less. He's no, he knows he's got to swing and miss less. And he felt the best that he's felt in the majors the last month of last year. Now, take this for whatever you want to take it for, because the, the swing and miss rate is exactly what it is and all of that. And the errors were high. But in the middle of last season, early in last season, one of his best friends from childhood was murdered down near where he grew up. Mm. And Tim has been pretty honest about this. He was he was in counseling for a while during the season, and he simply could not shake the, I don't want to use the word depression because that's a clinical term, but he couldn't shake the melancholy that came over him mm-hmm. 
from that. And, and he had a really rough year personally. Again, that, that doesn't wipe away the numbers, but I think having been around him at the end of the season and this past weekend, the guy is in a different place. Again, whether that translates statistically, I don't know. But I, I don't think what happened at the beginning of last season is going to happen again. I don't. I think the the White Sox have clearly had something of a uh, a bullpen rebuild over the course of the offseason. They've brought in Soria and Ivy Line, but the the pitcher who's most intriguing to me, and I I hesitate to even bring it up because Nate Jones is a fascinating reliever, and if he is good, he's going to be traded because that's the way that this goes. So. In a sense, asking a question about Nate Jones is asking a question about the future prospect package the White Sox can get for Nate Jones, but it was only two seasons ago he was one of the most dominant relievers in the game. Last year, had an elbow problem through only, I think, 11 innings. What is the current status of, of Nate Jones in the White Sox bullpen? Because he seems like right now he's someone no one is paying attention to who could just command one of those like mid-July blockbusters if he's actually pitching like he he's capable of. You guys have seen it. When he's healthy, he's out of this world. I mean, he's tough to see with the delivery he's got, but that's also the downside of that. The other side of that coin is the delivery puts some strain on his arm and his elbow. And that may be part of why he's been hurt in the past. But I mean, number one, as a clubhouse guy, he's, he's a bang up guy, great teammate from everything I've heard from Sox players. And if he's healthy, I agree with you completely. If he's healthy, and I don't know that he's going to be ready for the start of the season, I'm not sure. I, I don't say that in anticipation of him not being ready. I just have not heard what his status is currently. But if he's healthy at the deadline and teams are in need as they typically are, I, I agree with you. I mean, he's, he's a big-time value. It's just a matter of whether or not he's, he's ready to go. Speaking of pitchers who are recovering from some sort of injury or surgery, Carlos Rodon had a shoulder procedure back in September. He's throwing again. Do you have any up-to-the-date information on his timetable or when he might be back or what the expectations for him are? From what I've been told, he's not going to be ready for the season. And I would say just based on the chatter I've heard, it it would be more than a month into the season that he would be ready. I mean, it depends on how the rehab goes. It depends on what happens in Arizona, but he's not going to be ready for the season, certainly. I'm sure we're going to get to a, a Michael Kopech question. Maybe uh, maybe it'll be the next question, so you can just uh, you can sit there comfortably and await a question about <laughs> Michael Kopech. But before we get there... I'll play the home game. Lucas Giolito question. It was a few years ago. Lucas Giolito was considered the best pitching prospect in baseball. He was a... Scouts gave him like an 80-grade fastball. At least some scouts did. Not going to speak for all scouts, but 80-grade being the best fastball a pitcher can possess. And Giolito has been in the major a little bit. He was disappointing with the Nationals. Then he looked like a, uh, a different sort of pitcher with the White Sox. And one thing that is hard not to notice is that if Giolito had a, a fastball that could touch 100 before, well, last year with the White Sox, he was throwing about 92 or 93. He wasn't missing a whole lot of bats, but he was at least throwing strikes. Don Cooper got him somewhere in the zone, around the zone, such that he was actually able to get ahead. So You've got all of these pitching prospects in the rotation coming into the rotation. Where does Giolito rank right now, and how do the White Sox view his progress last year? Because he definitely looks like a different kind of pitching prospect than he was thought of when he was coming up through the minors the first time. If anybody listening to this is interested in the progress of Giolito, I would suggest taking a look at an inning or two of his first start with the Sox, and then an inning or two of even his second start 
with the Sox because his curveball, his accuracy with his curveball, its ability to be at least in the zone and then out of it was significantly better just to game two. And I think that speaks to Don Cooper, but I also think it speaks to, to Giolito and said actually that, that the feel of the ball in the minors was a little bit different. And that might sound like an excuse, but after that first game, you look at his accuracy with his curveball and the swings and misses he got on it and or it was a significant amount of takes in the first game because he buried a bunch of them. Like more often than not, he was spiking his curveball in the dirt. When that pitch was accurate for him and then thus effective, he was a different pitcher. So I know he's not throwing as hard as he used to, but the, the breaking stuff is is very strong. I mean, I've got a guy sitting next to me, Steve Stone, who, you know, won a Cy Young based on curveballs, and he loves Giolito's uh, breaking balls. So right now, I, I think Steve, right he, there, can you, can you put Steve on? He's <laughs> Dave, Dave. No, he's actually in Arizona, but I do have a portal where I can just talk directly to him. So the slider-curveball combination was kind of what carried him through the end of the year. But watch the first start compared to the second start. I think there was significant progress. I, I think Giolito can be a guy who's maybe not, certainly not at the, the number one spot in your rotation, but I think he's, the way he pitched at the end of last year, there's no reason that he couldn't be a, a two or a three. Jeff, you're going to ask that Michael Kopech question now? Uh, setting you, you up. Okay. Hard. So. <laughs> <laughs> so Michael Kopech question. <laughs> Do I need to be specific? What? Uh, oh, no, no, I got what's you. the What's I got the you. timeline? It really hard. Yeah. What What's the timeline with Michael Kopek? I guess would be the specifics of the question. I, that's up to him in in large part. I mean, Rick Hahn has said over and over again, and I don't I don't want to just parrot the general manager, but he's a good guy to parrot. He's a smart guy, nice guy. So he says, look. If he and Eloy Jimenez answer all the questions we have for him, they're going to be in, in Chicago. That's just going to happen. So I think for Kopech this year, it's making sure that he's got a curveball and a changeup that go along with his fastball. When we talked to him last year during a game, he said he had been really significantly tinkering with his changeup, figure out what works best for him. I mean, that is the very definition of why we have minor leagues. So if that's there, if, you, if you're watching either, I mean, it's going to be Charlotte, I, I would think, unless something dramatic happens, here's a Southern League pitcher of the year. If you're watching a Charlotte game and you see a dancing breaking ball or a changeup that just baffles hitters, and you see that over and over again with Kopech, chances are that's going to be the signal that he'll end up in Chicago sooner rather than later. So he knows what he needs to work on. He wants to be here. I mean, pretty badly to the point where he's said it publicly. He's one of the hardest workers people have seen, according to folks who have been around him in the minors. I think sooner rather than later, but but that is only if the non-fastball stuff is is good enough. And I have to ask a Yohan Mankata question. I've been doing these positional top 10 rankings for MLB Network, and I left Mankata off my top 10 at second base, and I, I kind of agonized over it, and I felt like if there was anyone I left off who would make me look really stupid for leaving him off a few months from now, <laughs> it would probably be Yohan Mankata, because even though I think there's a perception that he struggled somewhat, he was an above-average major league hitter at 22 he struck out a lot certainly but he also walked a surprising amount and showed some power 
So he was essentially already an average player or better, even with the sort of rough edges. And given the talent, the prospect pedigree, he seems like he will perpetually be a candidate to take a, a leap all of a sudden. So what do you think he has to work on and what are the prospects for him fulfilling his former prospect status? Yeah, I, I think the greatest sign for me was in his first plate appearance. He went, it, first of all, it was electric in the stadium. Like people, people showed up just to see that. He went down 0-2 and then he worked a walk. And you look at the strikeout numbers, not only in the minors, but in his brief stint with the Red Sox, they were astronomical especially at the end of his very short Red Sox tenure the year before. So the fact that he is understanding of the need to get up and show that he can take some pitches, I thought was a really good sign. When in your first plate appearance, you shuck off the rap on you, that's a really good sign. Now, he struck out some, as you said, more than he'd like in that time with the Sox last year. But I I just think he's the type of guy with those overwhelming skills. I mean, I, I was reading that, that Mark Appel story we were talking about, and just three 1-1 picks have never made it to the majors. Mm-hmm. Like That made me think that if you have that type of skill, and Moncada's not a, a 1-1 guy, but if you have that type of skill, chances are you're going to have at least some success. And I think the Sox are... Here's the best part of the Sox situation for me is that there's time to be patient. There's time to tinker if you need to tinker, and there's time to let sand run through the hourglass because there is no need right now to throw education and learning to the wind because you do have a little bit of a timetable where you can say this year is really predominantly development. And I generally think that if there was a little bit more of that in baseball on the whole, you guys were both at the event in Boston, Sabre seminar in, in what was it, July or August? Mm-hmm. August? August, yeah. Yeah, August. Fernando Perez, the former Tampa Bay Ray, for folks who don't know, he, he gave this presentation. And part of the presentation was basically like, sometimes there's not enough development in baseball. And I saw that in the minor leagues, too. There are some guys who kind of don't get enough attention. And then some days batting practice is just kind of like mess around time. And you need that because you need that release. But I do think in terms of educating players and training them with more of a focused eye, there's an opportunity to really make significant strides. And if you're in a rush to get somebody to the majors and then just have them perform, just like go do it, there's a a lack of development there and a a lack of improvement with focused practice. And now I sound like Malcolm Gladwell, but I actually (laughs) believe it. (laughs) Would you say that you were given enough development time in the minor league? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Listen, listen, you can Google this. I spent like 50 nights in a haunted hotel in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Okay. That's enough, dude. That's enough. Listen, there was one, there was one night in this hotel in Scranton where I woke up in the middle of the night, my TV was on, I hadn't turned it on. And the security deadbolt thing was on the door, the latch. And I never put that on. 
Never. <laughs> I've spent, I did spend enough time in the minors. Don't even start. <laughs> so, my last... I did a season in indie ball. You guys ever do a season in indie ball? I did, well, actually. actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that one didn't work. This is garbage. <laughs> ben has a whole book about it. Did you write a book about your season in indie ball? <laughs> nope. Did you write a book about your season? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my last question, I want to ask you a, a Hawk question from a, a broadcasting perspective. Is it about Mookie Blaylock? <laughs> it's not. So, Oh, okay. okay. Hawk seems to me like, <laughs> you know how you hear people describe players who have like an unorthodox batting stance or a, a funky motion or something. And they'll say, well, you wouldn't teach someone to, to do it like that necessarily, but it works for him. And that's sort of the the category that that Huck falls into. Maybe yet you went to Syracuse. You studied broadcasting, I assume. I, I don't know if they teach seminars in in Huck Harrelson, but obviously he is an icon, <laughs> an institution beloved by White Sox fans. What can you learn from from working with him and getting to know him and listening to him? Obviously, stylistically, you're a little bit different, but what do you take from from watching him work? Honestly, I actually don't think Hawk and I are that different in this way. I mean, the the way we do a game is different, certainly, substantively, in terms of how we approach what we do and the kind of the the aim. But Number one, we both love the team. But number two, what I really think we both are similar in, and I think our kindred spirits in, is quite often people go to school for broadcasting to learn the rules, and then they just do games for the rest of their lives within the rules. And I think Hawk and I both are the types of people who learn the rules to then figure out the best time to break them. And, you know, Hawk, Hawk does so many things that people say, where did he come up with that? How could you possibly come up with that? And, and I think it's a wonderful thing. I really do. Like being you, being the version of you that feels most genuine mm-hmm. and most right and just being what you are is really important in a lot of ways, not just on the air, but off the air too. And nobody could ever accuse Hawk of being disingenuous or fake or anything like that. And I think it's a beautiful thing. I really do. And the reason I say we're similar is I don't golf with Joe West, (laughs) but like, you know, I don't think other people are doing math in the fourth inning, Mm -hmm. you know, like Hawk and I both are looking for ways to kind of blow up the ordinary. And I think it's cool. I think it's been cool for our fans. We're different styles, but I think we're of the same mind in that way. And that's why I love watching him because yeah, some people get on him for being different or whatever, but like, dude, that's him. And I'm good. Yeah. I, I love mm-hmm. that. You're so similar. I think we might have Hawk on to do next year's segment about the White Sox. <laughs> well, he'll be retired uh, at that point. So. on first because you think we're going to be the worst <laughs> team in baseball? Or? Well, that'll, that'll oh, be welcome. Nice. <laughs> uh, so, I, I have not spent a whole lot of time in Chicago, certainly not enough to understand the city's culture and certainly not enough in the last few years. But if you had to, to say one or the other, would you say that with the White Sox, it's more helpful to have the Cubs in the same city just because you get this this model of the rebuild process they're going through? Or, or could it be a disservice because aside from any sort of envy or jealousy that you could just foster this air of maybe impatience thinking, when are we going to become that good is a how is how is it sharing a city with a team that's already done this and did it to perfection hmm 
That's a real loaded question. Um, no, the, the, my true answer, my honest answer is I love this as a baseball town, and it's in part because there are two teams. I mean, the rivalry is just lethal. It's scary how much people hate each other which, at points. And then there are other people I walk up to. I, this just happened yesterday on the street and i know comedians say that and it didn't just happen and they're kind of <laughs> making it up for the punchline sake but i was walking uh back to where i live in the city and a guy walking by me goes bonetti go sock and i turned and i just said like hey and then i i kind of did a double take and he was walking to his corner and i was walking to the corner where i was going to cross and then i turned back and i said hey what gives with that and wearing a cub hat the guy was wearing a cub hat and he said, go socks. And I was like, dude, what, what are you doing? And he goes, well, look, you know, I, I, I like the young players. I like the way they're doing it. I'm, I'm a fan. And I was like, you know what? I'm good with that. I'm down with that. I understand. So there are some people that definitely feel that way. And then there are other people that if you put a cub hat on them and they were a Sox fan, they would wash their hair 500 times before they went out again. And I love that. I mean, how can you beat that for sports? I, I just don't think you can. <laughs> so every year that we've done the series, we've ended every interview the same way. We ask for a win prediction. And then at the end of the series and the end of the year, one of our listeners goes back and analyzes how wrong everyone was about everything. Oh. This is probably a more of a fraught question for an announcer for a team who uh, has to be heard by fans every cool. day. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> here we are. Here comes a really fraught tradition. Thing. Demands that we ask you how many wins do you think the the White Sox will have this year? Seventy five. Okay, that was easy. I expected some some agonizing over that one, but you you had it ready to go. Honestly, I could say eighty. 85 and I, I feel like I feel like that would all be within the realm of possibility but the trajectory to me suggests 75 and then the bigger jump in 2019. Mm-hmm. So you can go yeah. back and make fun of two predictions now. Because <laughs> I just gave you one for next year. <laughs> just in case I don't get invited back. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was probably prudent. All right. Well, we will let you go. I assume you have a flight to catch. That is almost always something that someone could say about you and have it be true. But I'm just going to use my trampoline and get to the, uh, get to the airport. <laughs> my, my joke about White Sox fans being stuck with you aside, they're extremely lucky to be stuck with you. You are great at what you do. It's a pleasure to listen to you always. And they're going to get a treat of even more of you this year. So we're glad we could get you for a while. People can follow you on Twitter at Jason Benetti. They can hear you all season long doing White Sox games, maybe doing some other kinds of games too. And uh, Jason, thanks for being here. I'm glad to. I do have one question for you, Ben. Okay. Uh, are you going to be at spring training? And if so, what is your video game of choice? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I may be, I don't currently have plans to be, but often it it happens that I will end up there. But you, I know have played super smash brothers with some members of the white Sox, and that would probably be my video game of choice. So uh, original N64 version, if I, if I had to challenge someone at something, it would probably be that. But who's your character? Who do you use? I use Donkey Kong, which is uh, really? an extremely unorthodox choice, lower that. tier character. <laughs> but uh, he and I have just forged a bond. Not, 
not being judgmental about announcers <laughs> different. What are you doing with Donkey Kong? It's not an analytically sound decision, but he and I bonded at a young age, and I can't forsake him now. We have a lot of history together. So were you both uh, trying to kidnap my guy. princesses? How did you get <laughs> uh, Yeah, I would love to play you in uh, Smash 64 at some point. Do it. I'm in. All right. See you, Jason. Bye. Take care. Well, Todd Frazier signed after we finished recording with the Mets for a measly two years and 17 million. Maybe Jeff can get a post out of that. Thank you to everyone who has contributed or signed up to contribute to the Effectively Wild Wiki crowdsourcing project that we mentioned on Friday. Looks like there are about 20 episodes already summarized on the wiki. If just a small percentage of you would take one each, we'd be done in no time. Again, you can find the info on how to sign up and how to read the wiki. All those links are in the summary of this episode episode and in the show page at Fangraphs. You can support the podcast. Podcast must be supported at patreon.com slash effectively wild. Bunch of people from the Facebook group joined up or renewed their pledges this weekend. I really appreciate it. I'll thank five of them today. Steve Lyon, Joshua Callahan, Brett Schwartz, Scott Reinars, and Paul Radke. Thanks to all of you. You can join that Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. Please, please keep your questions and comments coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will get to them next time. Again, reminder to check out the series that is accompanying this podcast preview series at Banished to the Pen. That's banishedtothepen.com. If you'd like to suggest guests for a given team, feel free to write in. We have many in mind, but happy to have your feedback. We will talk to you soon. There's no fortune at the end of